Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading ed tech companies. Welcome to This Week in Ed Tech. We've got a big show for you today with a ton of ed tech news globally and nationally. It's March 11th, 2022. Last week, we did a deep dive on Russia and Ukraine, so we've got a lot to catch you up on. International Women's Day was this week, and so we'll also be talking about women in EdTech. We had South by Southwest, an in-person EdTech conference, hurrah, and we have government news on everything from ISAs to Title I funding. It's an exciting time. Alex, welcome to the show. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Today, we'll also be looking at some of the news coming out of India, which is just a hotbed for EdTech. And we're going to look at some really cool new models of employer-based training. So let's jump right in. Ben, start us off. All right. International Women's Day. Also, my mother-in-law's birthday. Happy birthday, Ruby. Holon IQ released their top 200 women who are starting and leading global edtech startups. Lots of great information here around the edtech startup community in the weeds of the report. And actually, if you look at the 2021 report as well, What you see is a huge disparity between what's going on in the classroom and what's going on in the boardroom. 75% of classroom educators are women. At the school principal level, it's 50-50. But of the 800 Holon EdTech startups, these are the 800 kind of hottest EdTech startups that are on their radar, 20% of those companies have female founders and 13% with female CEOs. And ultimately, as you go all the way down the pipeline to CEOs at IPO, it's still 1% of IPO CEOs are female. So a lot of work to be done in our space for gender equity, as well as from a business standpoint, a real competitive issue when the majority of your users or customers, if it's B2B, you know, it's educators, so 75% female. Or if it's B2C, a lot of the home decision-making is often by the women of the house. We really have an imbalance in terms of representation on our leadership teams and connected with our field and our market. So really interesting times. Alex, I know you saw some other articles and groups around EdTech and female founders. Yeah, so this is such an important topic, especially in education where the workforce for education is so dominantly female, but for ed tech, it's still only about an eighth of companies. One news item that caught my eye this week was that Erase All Kittens, which is a really cool online game that teaches girls to code, and it's a startup that does that, signed a big distribution deal. That's a company with a female founder and a female coding focus. So that was great news to see on this week. I was also looking at the Supercharger Ventures site because they have a really nice ed tech female founders group where they try to sort of bring people together who are those 13% and give them accelerators and ways to connect and build. So that was nice. And then the last thing that we were looking at was there was a really interesting article out of NASDAQ actually about how the theme of International Women's Day this year is break the bias. 
And the idea in this article was to break the bias for artificial intelligence and machine learning, which, as we know, is such a big part of, of ed tech. And basically, the thinking was, we have 75% female ratio of all teachers in A12, up to 54% of principals. But the ed tech world is going more and more into artificial intelligence. It's going to grow about 71% is the prediction over the next five years. And only a quarter of data and AI positions are held by women. So the takeaway there is as ed tech becomes more and more connected to artificial intelligence and machine learning, there may be an exacerbated issue with female jobs and leaders in the field. And one way to remedy that would be to start to think about how to bring more female representation into AI and ML as a way to get it into ed tech. So I thought those were all interesting angles on International Women's Day. I'm so glad we got the topic to lead the show. And it's an underlying theme that we've been talking about for months now, which is really about the diversity of the edtech sector and how that is impacting both opportunity and equity writ large, but also how it's affecting the business models. And one thing that struck me is we also need gender parity in the classroom and we need to find ways for educators, both male and female, to find successful pathways and careers in the classroom. And I kind of connected the dots with gender pay disparity, teacher pay disparity, and then the low proportion of male educators. So it makes me wonder, you know, how are all these things connected? And later in the show, we'll be talking about is a teacher exodus happening or not? And if we're thinking about the future of ed tech, it seems like this should be the field that leads everyone in tech around gender equity, as well as racial and ethnic equity, as well as diversity of backgrounds. So the whole NIQ report was kind of a sobering reality check. A hundred percent. There's a lot of work still to do for the field. So we talked last week almost entirely about Ukraine and Russia, and it's obviously a humongous issue, continues to be in the world. We're now pushing two million refugees out of Ukraine, making it the biggest refugee crisis potentially in in all of history. And we did want to touch on it briefly today. It won't be the bulk of the show, but a couple of things happened this week with relation to Russia and, and Ukraine and education specifically. A lot of colleges cut their ties and financial ties to Russia. The European University Association kicked out all Russian universities. And you're just seeing Russia become more and more a sort of pariah state. It's being boycotted People are running away from Russia in, in almost every type of cultural institution in Europe and the West. And that definitely includes education. We saw this week both Coursera and edX remove all courses from Russian universities off their platforms. Basically, every company is looking at its own model and figuring out how to close the door on Russia because it is where we're at as a world. And this is likely to remain true uh, as long as Putin stays in power. So. It's just getting worse and worse, the war, and I think Russia is isolating itself more and more and more. Ben, what are your thoughts about the future of Russian education? Well, I think the EdTech angle on this is that Russia is basically going to be a closed economy and almost like a lab experiment to understand how does government-controlled ventures, government-controlled economy, but also government-controlled education respond to education and technology. And so if we rewind, 
the Soviet education system was actually one of the greatest achievements of the Communist Party. I looked up some of the data and literacy levels were at 13% and grew to 99.7%. It was a marvel of the industrial world and definitely a contrast to the U.S. model, which is all about localized control, often emphasizing choice. The model in Russia was the kind of planned communist education ideal. And for many, it was a path to the middle class. It was a path to, especially in the STEM fields, advancement. So how will the Soviet Union 2.0 that Putin is building, how will they approach education? On the flip side, an educated populace might be the biggest danger for Putin. So if it's the channel for propaganda, then great. If it's a channel for free thinking and empowerment, that could threaten them. So it's going to be a lab experiment here for the next decade, unless something meaningful happens with Putin. And we should be watching because it's a huge country with many, many millions of learners, and they will be leveraging whatever resources they have to create a state-run edtech apparatus. Yeah, we also might see a a brain drain 2.0 if Russia does close in that way. I think Russian professors and researchers who have been very used to being part of a global world may not be particularly interested in 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 either version, either a a closed and total propaganda arm or a closed and trying to uplift the population through central control. It's going to be very crazy. My hope, frankly, is that this is really the end of Putin's regime one way or the other, and we don't have to see a whole decade of this in Soviet Union 2.0, but obviously only time will tell. <laughs> That's sort of a low note, but it's it's such a stressful topic, and the news is so painful to listen to or, or watch for everybody who's watching it. So on a happier note, one of the interesting trends starting to take off this week is this idea of new models of training, especially employer-based education. We've seen this for a couple of years with companies like Guild, but there was an announcement this week that really caught my eye about a program called Dev Degree. It started by the prior head of learning at General Assembly, Melissa Jones. And it's basically a model where Shopify, the non-edtech company that does online retail, is investing millions of dollars a year to help people get CS degrees in this very particular way. It's basically a full-time CS degree for four full years, but for all four years, the students are working for half of the day and learning for the other half of the day. So it's like entirely work integrated where students are both learning and working at the same time for their entire college experience. That's a really interesting model. And so far, they're seeing 92% completion rates from the cohorts that have graduated, 90% find full-time engineering roles before graduation and, and almost all within six months of graduation. So early data is showing that this is a pretty promising model. And that's been really exciting to see. There, before we move on on other employer models, I'm curious what you think of this dev degree model, Ben. What does it speak to for you? Well, it's somewhat of an apprenticeship model. And we've seen this model work really well in other fields, particularly like nursing and healthcare, where staffing shortages have been a decades-long problem. The challenge that most people face is you apprentice someone and then they go work somewhere else, right? right? And what I find really interesting about this model is that you actually get four solid years of part-time work and 
ultimately to if you add it all up. And uh, it does seem like a large number of these folks do end up transitioning to work at Shopify. So is there an employer model where rather than them going to a third party like Guild, where actually dev degree essentially helps them set up their own custom program? And right. with that intentionality around the apprenticeship, you are getting output from that apprentice workforce, but also a pipeline. The numbers here, I believe it was like 115 students. Right. These are not going to be game changing for the entire workspace. But if you look at what Shopify is doing as kind of the cutting edge of what's to come, you could really see a world in which government subsidy for higher education stays flat or declines and employer subsidies leaning into these kinds of blended models increase rapidly. Absolutely. And the nonprofit Jobs for the Future ran a panel this week at South by Southwest EDU that mentioned some of the ideas, exactly the kind of ideas you're naming, Ben, that U.S. workers know that they need training, they know they need additional skills, and instead of always assuming that those can only come through traditional education institutions, they're starting to look at companies that can give mobile education, can provide stackable credentials or skills-based credentials or a lot of different types of learning that are a little bit more sort of fit into the flow of life a little bit more. And I think that Mm -hmm. model you're mentioning of employers being able to offer meaningful educational experiences directly is starting to feel realer and realer. And I think more and more companies are going to dip into it. One other thing that stood out to me about this dev degree program is that it's so explicitly not a boot camp. Mm -hmm. It's a four-year CS program with part-time work attached for all four years. As you mentioned, Ben, that's four years of part-time work, but also a much longer time span to learn in compared to the bootcamp models, which tend to be six to 12 months. So just the idea of four years of apprenticeship is really not very common in the US. Well, and so the question around that one then, Alex, is are we going to see people tending towards these bite-sized chunks which that's what we've been reporting on, I don't know, for the last six weeks, or are we going to see long form or will there be both and students will have to decide. One thing that I'm particularly interested in is brand and the brand halo. So a big part of higher ed is the logo that's on your resume and the selectivity of that and also the implications for your total potential. So a lot of people use the university that you go to as a stand-in for measuring your competency for a job. Are these programs actually going to be branded in a way that I did the Shopify four-year apprenticeship that might stand out relative to I completed XYZ bootcamp and worked at XYZ company? So there is a way in which People are building careers in this stackable and generally short form way. And some of these long form programs over four years might actually stand out. That's a really interesting way in which the principles of higher ed might be applying in the workforce education space. Those are great points. There was a really interesting short article in Forbes a few years ago about how they surveyed parents and many parents said that a Google internship was more valuable to their students than a Harvard degree. And it was a, I mean, the majority in that survey. And it felt Mm -hmm. like a watershed moment for the type of branding that you're mentioning, traditional education brands versus 
bootcamp brands versus corporate brands. I think there's going to be a, all sorts of interesting changes there. And in terms of the long versus short, in an ideal world, that's where stackability comes in. You can imagine a world where people can take a year of computer science apprenticeship with Shopify, walk away with a meaningful certificate from that, and then decide whether to stack that into a full degree or to transfer it to another program. So all of this is blue sky space in the US. We really don't do much of this, but it's exciting to see big and well-branded companies like Shopify jumping into it. Alex, where do you see the kind of innovative higher ed players intersecting with this, like Southern New Hampshire or Western governors? Like, do you see this as an alternative path or are these likely to blend together? I've always been expecting to see university and corporate partnerships cropping up and they have to a degree, but it really hasn't caught on like wildfire like one would expect, especially with companies that have a large employee base in a particular state. So do you see these as separate trends or or intersecting? Yeah, it's such a good question. So there was a terrific article this week as well that, again, we'll put these all in the show notes as always, called Is Competency-Based Education an Idea Whose Time Has Come? Really focusing on Paul LeBlanc and his work at, at Southern New Hampshire. And you mentioned WGU, Western Governors as well. My instinct <laughs> from everything I've read and looked at for this is that what these programs have in common, what the alternative sort of mega university competency-based models and the corporate models of education have in common is that they both see employment as the absolute core goal for the students and make decisions, make major educational and pricing decisions, for example, and a lot of decisions based on that assumption that they know that students are coming to them to get a fulfilling and meaningful and lucrative enough job in the shortest possible time. So I would think that these paths are in parallel and they should intersect. And it would be very easy to see Southern New Hampshire, for example, accepting prior credits for people who have done an apprenticeship and giving them a year of credit towards their degree or two years or three years based on this work integrated learning. If I were Southern New Hampshire, I would do that tomorrow. You might also see it going the other way, where people are going to innovative universities and gaining skills through a traditional school, and then they want to move into apprenticeship, they can accelerate through the apprenticeship and move to full-time work faster. I don't know if these will actually happen. Transfer credit is always an enormous mystery in this space, but I think that the incentives are are pretty well aligned for places like Southern New Hampshire and WGU and Shopify and General Assembly. <laughs> so I definitely think these models are going to intersect in the future. Ben, tell us about what's going on with the government. Oh, what is not going on with the government these days, Alex? I think the news that caught our eye this week had to do with higher education, income share agreements, and loan forgiveness. The education department issued official rules on income share agreements, and those rules essentially frame ISAs as private loans. So ultimately, any company offering an ISA, you are actually a loan provider, and that these agreements then are regulated by loan and financial loan agreements. Colleges have a lot of requirements about how they're able to promote or not promote loan agreements. And so I think this has like a two-sided impact. One is it gives the clarity so that ISA providers aren't in this gray zone. 
But two, it means that there's quite a bit more regulation on how an ISA is set up, what happens if there is a default, what are the rules in terms of colleges marketing and promoting them, and puts them more alongside traditional loan providers for college. The second piece is really around the forgiveness of such loans. The education department announced that it has identified 100,000 borrowers with 6.2 billion in loans that will be erased by a public service loan forgiveness program. So just doing the math, 100,000 borrowers have 6.2 billion in loans? That's insane. In January, there were 70,000 borrowers with more than 5 billion in debt relief. The reality is, and we reported on this about a month ago, this idea of free college for all or eliminating all loans and all college debt, that really hasn't gotten the political traction it needed in Washington. But through this public service loan forgiveness program, when people are post-grad doing work that qualifies, that could be things like AmeriCorps, there is an avenue for forgiving those loans. And I will remind everyone that another form of loan forgiveness is serving in the military, which through military tuition programs, you can get a free four-year degree and then you do National Guard or full-time military service. And so this is an extension of that to community service programs. So really exciting to get some clarity on ISAs, exciting to see that Loan forgiveness is in action. And of course, many of these people who are doing public service, they're in education. Any comments that you have or thoughts on that one or other news items that are coming up in your government newsfeed? Yeah. So obviously, I think loan forgiveness is a wonderful thing. And I'm really happy that the administration is finding ways to forgive student loans, even though they haven't gotten full traction on some of the headline programs like Free Community College. That's great news, and I hope this continues to rise, and I think it shows a dedication on the part of the government to not leave students holding enormous you know, loans for many years. The ISA news, I'm a little more torn on, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I think the impetus behind this is really noble. I think the government is saying, you know, ISA spread very quickly after being sort of popularized by what was once called Lambda School, now Bloom Institute of Technology, and a couple of other boot camps. They spread like wildfire. There were over 70 boot camps offering them. They were starting to make their way into all sorts of different kinds of programs. And I think the fear there is, well, if something's spreading really quickly and it's dedicated to what sounds like a great idea, which is not charging students until they have work and then taking a percentage of their income, in practice, in some cases, it was becoming potentially predatory. So I think that it's noble to try to protect students from predatory loans, of course, predatory lending. But ISAs were one of the only really innovative financial moves in, in higher education and in alternative education, I think we've seen in quite a while. And I think this is going to have a huge chilling effect. I mean, I think most of the boot camps that offer this now will just shut them off immediately rather than go through the regulation and red tape to become official loan providers with all the scrutiny that entails. So in a way, this sort of puts the kibosh on one of the alternative financing models and potentially, hopefully, puts a little bit of fire under people's heels to come up with other ones that may not be turned predatory or that might not be seen as predatory. But it's a little bit of a shame to me that 
you know, I was waiting for colleges to start offering ISAs because what an amazing idea to be able to tie tuition to outcomes. But before that could even happen, I think this thing is going to be all but dead, in my opinion. The other piece of news that caught my eye was in K-12 schools, which is that the Title I funding for high poverty schools, we had large promises from the Biden administration when they first got into office, but the increase was relatively muted this week. And it was about 6%, which is lower than was promised. I think this is just a result of government gridlock, but it's worth noting that there's not a huge increase for high poverty schools, especially in the wake of a pandemic with enormous learning loss, especially in high poverty populations. On that one, I mean, there was a a sense that maybe this was a New Deal administration that was going to pump serious dollars into not only infrastructure, but also into the most impactful programs that alleviate poverty, number one of which is a high quality of education. And I think in my position as a school board member and in talking with other district administrators, there was a cautious optimism that there would be a flood of funding that would enable a recovery period from COVID. And what we're seeing is that the current conditions in government, the current state of the economy, there's not the political will to really deal with the long-term impacts of COVID coupled with all of the additional spending that has to do with health and safety now because of COVID recurrence, we're actually seeing less money net go to the kids that need it the most. On the ISA front, I could see a couple ways that it plays out. One is I could see Web3 and crypto solutions coming up faster because the ISA retraction gives more room for learn to earn where people essentially gain equity or gain tokens for their learning that then could be cashed in, or they could essentially create some sort of barter system where they need to repay back through their own efforts. The other area is that just like loans, there's a consolidation in the loan industry of people who service loans. You could imagine that in aggregate, the ISA solution could be solved by a few middlemen who could figure out how to get all of the regulatory pieces together and could offer an ISA platform that multiple schools could get involved in and also de-risking it for each individual one of running their own ISA. So don't give up on ISAs just yet. Ultimately, though, we need more kids that are ready for post-secondary education and the chilling news from the Biden administration around Title I funding is just one piece of funding downsides that we're hearing even on a state-by-state basis. So Alex, we did our government beat, which is definitely ending on a low note. Let's talk about (laughs) up and to the right, our India beat. Can you share a little bit of what you're looking at? Sure. So India has been a hotbed of education and ed tech for quite a while and this week we saw news that it is the India is the top nation to get edtech patents with Microsoft in India actually leading the race for edtech patents which is very very interesting to think about we saw upgrad which is an indian unicorn edtech company commit to a large scale 15000 women learner scholarship called the vidya shakti scholarship 
basically encouraging women to pursue learning and employment opportunities at scale. That's really exciting, including female NGO workers, police women, female journalists, all sorts of people, and blue-collared women across the state of Bharat. And then we were starting to see some consolidation in the Indian market. So Ben, talk to us about consolidation. Well, India is one of those markets where everyone is trying to grab share. And so we saw a number of M&A deals. I'm most interested in Infinity Learn, which acquired Don't Memorize. The CEO of Infinity Learn, Ujwal Singh, was actually the person who ran Pearson's global connections business. And Don't Memorize is a content provider. And if you can imagine the kind of growth rates of these companies, having a content engine that's creating video, they have something like 250 million daily users on Don't Memorize's content platform. It's really interesting, this battle over the kind of core components. This is one of the trends that we've been seeing. 2021, Baiju's kind of kicked things off. They bought Great Learning for $600 million. They bought Epic for $500 million. And they bought Akash Educational Services for $1 billion. So something like $2 billion in deal flow from Baiju's alone. And then in November, Una Academy, which is also a unicorn, bought SwiftLearn. And then Mindler acquired Immerse. So, you know, it's this rapid fire of acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. One thing that I do think is interesting to watch is that it started with the unicorns and the big companies. And now we're seeing deals that are likely in the 50 to 100 million, much smaller range. And so people are racing to aggregate into the three or four big players in that space. And it's reminiscent of the kind of publishers grab for content and dominance in the US in the post-war era. So it's happening much faster, but what we're seeing is really Infinity Learn trying to step in and say, hey, we're going to be one of the big players alongside the Baijus of the world. I also do want to say that one that we're watching really closely is Eruditus. Eruditus. I don't know if I'm saying that's right. Eruditus. They got Eruditus, I think. Eruditus. They got 350 million in debt funding for M&A. And there's a rumor that they're buying a European company that provides courses to non-English speakers. So two things. One is, how does that news get out that somebody is raising debt to acquire a company in Europe? Like Normally, that's the stuff that's really, really quiet and closely guarded. So it must be viewed that publicly, it's strategically advantageous to talk about debt financing for M&A. And then the fact that people are issuing debt for Indian companies to acquire European companies, I also think um, shows how real the Indian surge as a dominant player in the ed tech space is. Yeah. And so this reminds me a lot of China. In China, the growth started in the major cities of Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and then moved to second tier and third tier cities. And I think what we're seeing in India is the ed tech phenomenon is real and it's moving outside to second and third tier cities in rural areas. The newspaper, the news media journal Startup Barat has an article about edtech startups bridging the gap in non-metro cities. And based on that data, Praxis IVCA is reporting that the edtech market in India is projected to double from 117 billion in 2020 
to $225 billion by 2025. So that's a $100 billion gain in just five years. And it's just another reminder that if you really want to be on the cutting edge of what's going on in EdTech, move to Delhi or Mumbai. <laughs> Absolutely. And there are a couple of more uh, mergers and acquisitions we wanted to talk about this week. I think the Ariadatis news is very exciting to follow. But Reforge raised $60 million to power the expertise economy. Ben, you know a lot about Reforge. Tell us a little bit about the, yeah. the meaning of this. Brian Balfour has been like a real expert in growth, and he put together kind of an all-star team of peer educators, no credentialing, no degree, nothing, no certificate, but they've had incredible uptake in their classes. And Brian really knows how to grow and market. And this 60 million shows that people are open to peer learning that doesn't necessarily lead to some sort of badge or credential. Meanwhile, Clear Lake decided to buy Discovery Education, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is huge. Discovery Education is one of the biggest education companies, players, publishers. They spun off from Discovery, I don't know, five, seven years ago, something like that. They were owned by Francisco Partners. And so when a PE firm buys from another PE firm, you wonder, is it A, they're recapitalizing and ready to go on an M&A spree? Or B, are things not going well and someone else is stepping in to fix it? Given that they're keeping the entire management team and the CEO, I think that Discovery Education is likely to be a big player with Clear Lake behind them. They're huge and they have businesses in all sorts of sectors. Discovery will be their anchor education partner. So really exciting to watch. And amongst all of this M&A, don't be surprised if you see Discovery Education popping up again. Yeah. The last funding round we wanted to cover this week is a company called Daybreak. It is a school-focused behavioral and mental health startup that's looking to go national. This makes a lot of sense. We've talked on the show about how behavioral and mental health is in a crisis in schools across the U.S. This was led by Lightspeed Ventures, which is a really innovative VC firm that does a lot of education investing. And I think it, it's one of perhaps a number of mental health, behavioral health, sort of uh, non-academic startups that I would guess are going to start growing over the next couple of years as we pull out of the pandemic. Ben, you just got back from South by Southwest EDU, one of the big education conferences. What were your takeaways from the conference? Well, I could go on and on. Some of the best sessions were really around the intersection between education, what's going on in the world. There was a session on culture wars in schools and how that's affecting educators administrators, as well as education, technology, organizations, and companies. And what we're seeing is that school has become a primary battlefield in partisan politics. The second one that was really profound was a look at climate change and the intersection with education. And normally, I think about climate change and education about curriculum content, helping students learn about climate change. But it was really actually about the infrastructure of schools and the billions of dollars of energy schools consume. And from an infrastructure standpoint, there was one really salient point. A school buys an HVAC system once every 30 years. The moment they buy it, they're locked in for 30 years. And many of these HVAC systems, when you buy the cheapest one, they are not energy efficient. 
And so we're essentially making purchasing decisions today that make it impossible to meet our climate goals of tomorrow. And there's a role that schools, school boards, and communities can play in that, as well as universities. My bigger takeaway, though, was really this question around what is the future of education conferences? Attendance was a third of normal. South by Southwest organizers did a great job, but the exhibit hall was pretty sparse. There were a bunch of companies there, but no one going around to the booths. The sessions were not well attended. Educators outside of Texas did not show. And that's not surprising, given everything that's going on in schools. I particularly enjoyed the in-person networking. It was such a refreshing moment to get out from behind the Zoom camera and in person with people. But the conference industry has been a backbone of business and deal-making and the spreading of new practices in education. And what's clear is it's not back to where it was before. And so how will it evolve with virtual and online? What is the purpose of a conference? And is it better constructed with a fully virtual or hybrid virtual in-person setup? We'll be asking that question over the next year, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, South by Southwest is always held in March and South by Southwest EDU. So I remember back in 2020, there was a lot of concern because they actually weren't canceling it. You know, in March 2020, the pandemic really hit in major ways. And South by Southwest is an enormous conference and they weren't canceling it. And they were clearly doing everything they could to keep it on because it was such an incredibly large undertaking with huge investments in it. And they eventually had to cancel it and then obviously had to cancel it the year after. And this is the first year back. And we're just at a time when people are beginning to travel again. So I think next year will be the real deciding point. If they can get back to full or even close to full attendance next year, we have a chance of getting back to normal. But if they don't, it might not be economically feasible to do conferences like this. Don't you think? Yeah. I ultimately wonder whether micro conferences where there's still the in-person meetup that then are connected by virtual content, that's a way to do it. Or you just say like the point of the conference is for people to network in person and you just have very low cost meetup locations. So coming back to it, what is the purpose of the conference in our education space? We should be going back to first principles and figuring that out and then rebuilding from there. Absolutely. So let's end our podcast today with a game. And I have a game for you today, Ben. I'm hoping you will find it interesting and challenging. So this week, Fast Company published its most innovative companies lists, including the most innovative companies in education, according to Fast Company editors. So in this game, I'm going to explain the reason why a certain ed or ed tech company made the list and you will have to name the company. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. I I hope to not fail you spectacularly. (laughs) All right. So this company made the list for becoming the poster child company for the cohort-based course model and growing quickly and earning its creators hundreds of thousands of dollars on the platform. Okay. So, and just to be clear, I read the article there were some laugh out loud companies that were on the list. I won't tell you which ones, but you know, you wonder sometimes with Fast Company and Forbes and others, is this journalistic or is this paid promotion? So I, I will caveat it with that. I believe this one is Maven. Maven 
basically was founded by the Udemy founder. And from what I understand, we reported before that some people are making millions as content creators. Yes. I'm not sure there's anyone making millions yet on Maven, but that's where, certainly where they're heading. Good job. That was exactly right. The second company made the list for IPOing this year for remaining at the top of the app store for one of the very most downloaded education apps in the world and for beginning to move into early literacy and math. Okay. So I thought I knew what it was. And then you said moving into early literacy and math. I may be wrong on this one, but is it Duolingo? It is Duolingo. Duolingo is moving into yes. early literacy. Wow. Duolingo is moving into early literacy and math. Watch out. Watch out. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, on every app store list, Duolingo is always in the top four or five. And my friend Matt over there is their CFO and they just IPO'd. You got it. You got it. Two for two. So number three, this company made the list for doubling its user base over the last year or two for IPOing recently, and for growing in India, partially through its partnerships with the IIT universities. Mm. I'm not sure about this one. I'm wondering if it is PowerSchool. I know that they are publicly traded and IPO'd, and I know that they do work in India, and they've been highly acquisitive. Is it PowerSchool? No, no. Power School is on the list, but this one is Coursera. Oh, gosh. Coursera. Yeah, of course. They just IPO'd and are creating a global network of institutions that connect through Coursera. My bad. Sorry, Coursera people. (laughs) It was a very good guess. Number four, this company made the list for increasing the percentage of its revenue that comes from digital products from 50 to 70% and for launching what they call Plus, its textbook subscription model. What company is that? Okay, so this one, we try to be neutral, and I also love what most people are doing in the space, but this one made me laugh a little bit. I think this one is Pearson. They're a textbook company that's trying to reinvent themselves and connections, and some of their online learning is going really well. I wouldn't put them in my 10 most innovative companies in education, but I think this one is Pearson. Dead on. Absolutely. Good job. That is Pearson. Pearson Plus is the textbook subscription model that was named as an innovative model in the article. I'm keeping my editorial stance quiet for now on all of these, but I know <laughs> where you're coming from. Number five, we only have six of these. I will name the other companies as well. But number five, this company made the list for its major growth in subscribers and for working with Target in a deal to carry its age-appropriate toys. My good friend Emily Greenberg just went to go work for them. I think it's Love Every. They're doing early childhood right, and they figured out digital plus physical, and I believe that that's the Target deal that they're doing as well. Absolutely. Perfect. Yes, they're putting toys into Target as well as their subscriber toy box model. And our last one, this company made the list for acquiring Naviance, Mm. for signing 30 statewide contracts, and for going public recently. This one has to be a power school then. I'm pretty sure that they went with Naviance and I knew they went public. I didn't know that they signed 30 statewide contracts. I mean, that's huge. But power school just keeps 
churning out hits. They're grinders over there and they're, they continue to grow their depth and connections in the education space. Great job. That definitely was power school. So you were five of six. That's very, very respectable. I think it's better than that. on competency Great days. Job. And then, so it's a B. It's a B. B plus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I want to mention the other companies that made the list just for completion's sake and because they deserve note. There's company Trala, which is doing AI-based music education, focusing on violin training of all things. Very interesting. Company called A Kids Company About. The company is called a Kids Company About, which publishes socially relevant books for children involving modern issues. Sounds very interesting. A company called Sketchy, which does storytelling and visual aids for medical and pharmacy students. And a company called RIIID, I do not how to pr- know how to pronounce that, which is making AI-based tutoring for international English exams, the TOEIC exam, and has done some really interesting work raising student scores through adaptive and AI-based tutoring. So congratulations to all the companies that made the list at EdTech alike. Ben, do you want to take us out? Yeah, well, congrats to those companies. And it is a really interesting list with some large players and some players that we haven't heard of. So we're excited to learn a little bit more about those companies, especially Trala, Reed, Sketchy, and a kid's company about. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us through some pretty harrowing times across the world and across EdTech. We're so excited to have you as our listeners. We really value your feedback. So please comment on our LinkedIn page. It's EdTech Insiders at LinkedIn or send Alex or I a message. We'd love to know what you're enjoying and ideas for guests, topics, or any other ways we can improve the show. Thank you all for joining us and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.